Millions of frontline workers keep our economy running and are provided with the latest technology to do their jobs. But digital adoption, especially by frontline workers, is really hard. This is Frontline Innovators. We explore how to overcome challenges and achieve success when we empower our essential workers. I'm Justin Lake. And I'm Gene Signorini. Together, we speak with experts who are leading the way and driving digital transformation to the front line. This podcast is sponsored by Skillful on a mission to help frontline workers learn and use the technology needed to succeed in their jobs. Welcome to the Frontline Innovators Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Lake, and we're about to have another great conversation for today's episode. My guest today is a project management professional with PMI, a certified change management professional with ProSci, a Lean Six Sigma Black Belt, recently led organizational change management, agile content training and development at a major transportation logistics company, and has recently taken on a new role as an expert product manager. Please welcome to the show today, Hillary Carper. Hello, Hillary. Hi, Justin. Thank you so much for having me. Your experience and credentials were quite a mouthful for me. So uh, there's there's a lot of great uh, experiences going on there. And uh, as we get into the show, I'm really looking forward to exploring that. So let's start off as we do with every show and ask what you think is the biggest challenge you see facing the deskless workforce today. And I love this question. And I love that you ask it at the beginning of all your podcasts, right? Um, such a, a diverse response. But I would say, my opinion, there's a couple of things happening right now. I think we have a balance situation, problem, whatever you want to call it, where we have employees who are now working from home, right? COVID sent most of the workforce home and, and all of the workforce home, potentially some of them are still there. And so finding the balance between Hillary Carper as a person and Hillary Carper as an employee is I think a struggle. Um, I used to get ready for work, drive about 30 minutes to the office and I would pull in and I would be ready to go. I was in work mode. And now I have to walk from you know one end of my house to the other to my home office. And in that short amount of time, I, I'm expected and I have learned that I have to be ready, you know, work mode, Hillary. And so that's been difficult. And then technology and the connectivity that we have these days with the mobile devices and everything kind of at your fingertips, any email, any notification, um, any chat, you know, we, we sort of feel compelled to respond or at least many of us feel co compelled to respond. Yeah. So I would say balance, just finding a balance between um, it's my lunchtime on Thursday and I had to run to Walmart and I'm getting pinged and I feel like I'm standing in the aisle, right? Responding instead of like picking up the things I need, going home and really taking advantage of my lunch hour and then responding. So balance to me is, is a big one. And then kind of that triangle of connection engagement and collaboration, right? The virtual environment has, has really put a strain on that. Um, we don't collaborate in ways that we used to. We've had to kind of find a new um, groove for what collaboration looks like via um, the, this virtual environment, you know, new tools that we're not used to using. I mean, I don't, I don't know about you and some of your listeners and viewers, but we would get in a room and write on a whiteboard, right? And we would, you know, brainstorm or, or map things that way. And so we've had to learn different ways of doing that, right, virtually. Um, 
engagement. It's really, really easy, especially if you have like multiple monitors, <laughs> to be in a meeting on one and responding, you know, over here on these screens. Um, and then just the connection, right? It's it's hard. We, you know, we'd go to the office and you'd have those water cooler conversations, or you know, you'd walk over to somebody's office or cubicle and you know, hey, how are you? Hey, Justin, how's your weekend? You know, you got big plans for the evening or whatever. Um, that's a little bit more difficult to do today, right? So I would say a combination of those things are probably um, really impacting our, our workforce right now in this deskless environment. Yeah, everything you said, it makes perfect sense. And I've experienced a lot of, of what you're describing today. How do you think that experience, you know, you've worked in a, in a bunch of organizations, your, your current organization and, and the ones even before this where... Um, you had many, many women who were actually outside of the traditional office environment. They were working in the field in, in some capacity. How do you feel that the, the experience for them over the last couple of years has been different than that which you experienced as kind of a knowledge worker working out of the corporate office? So I think there's been a, a general feeling for some of those folks that have been remote before it was you know, cool, if you will, yeah. um, that they felt a little more disengaged, right? They didn't feel as included. They they felt um, oblivious to what's going on at, you know, at corporate or in the office. And so I think those folks are, are probably the experts that we should have been looking at, right? In the, in the very beginning of this to say, like, how have you been doing this so successfully for so long? You know, like, um, how do you manage your time? You know, do you have any things that you've, you know, learned were not good? You know, what are your best practices that you could share? So I, th I think those folks were probably better prepared. The thing that I think hit everybody, regardless if you were remote before or an office employee is, we were all sent home, you know, we were sent home at, at my company on March 13th. Some, some others were before that, some maybe a little after, but on the 16th of March, we had children who were also using our internet bandwidth <laughs> to do learning. Um, I was lucky I had a, a pre-kindergartner at that time. So we, I didn't have to worry about that necessarily, but I did have to worry about the development and growth of my child so that they were prepared for kindergarten. But even these tenured, if you will, remote employees, there was a whole element added to their day that they, they weren't really used to. Nobody was, right? I have to separate rooms. Do I have enough rooms and space in my home for myself? And if you have a, a partner potentially, or you have multiple kids, you know, how do you make that work? And I think that the fact that we all got through 2020, um, I, I, I just have all of the respect for people with big families, single parents, parents that have, you know, working inside and outside the home, fam I mean, everybody, it, it's just, you just want to give everybody a high five, right? Yeah, seriously. <laughs> you hate it. it it's really been an unprecedented level of change and, you know, at both the macro and the micro level. Mm -hmm. And during this time, it's also created a need 
for many of the organizations um, that that we all work for to push out more and more technology at the same time, right? Which is really a, a big part of the the theme of of the Frontline Innovators Show. So I, I want to circle back around to some of the things that we talked about there, but I really do want to get to know you and share a little bit more about your background with our audience so that we can get some kind of perspective on where your experiences come from. Uh, I know you're in the transportation logistics business today. I know you didn't start there. So take us back a little bit and help us understand, you know, how you had your career journey and how you ended up in the role that you're doing today. Yeah. So my professional career started, um, I was teaching, didn't really like it that much. Um, I went to school for that. I you know, had some really good jobs. I worked in kind of multifamily housing and some real estate around the area that I live in. And then I went to work for a company, phenomenal company um, in the oil and gas manufacturing industry. And they are the ones that introduced me to my two professional passions, if you will. So the first one was Lean Six Sigma, continuous improvement. So I think I've always naturally had that lens that I looked at things through. I was always questioning why we were doing something the way we were. It seemed really inefficient, things like that. And so they sent myself and, and some other folks from the company through this training. And it was like this light bulb went off. I'm like, this is a thing. And there's actual science data, mathematical tools I can use, right? To prove all of this blew my mind. So the next step in the journey for kind of my cohort of, of folks at that company was change management. And so this is over 10 years ago. Change management, I, first of all, I'd never even heard of it. Uh, second of all, I didn't understand why if I was going to be a Lean Six Sigma black belt, why I needed this other training. Um, but I went and I think it was kind of in that, that class at, at ProSci where I went to a practitioner's certification training where all of the light, well, all the light bulbs and bills kind of went off for me. I was like, this is, this is what I was born to do, right? Um, the people side of change. And so the, the marriage between change management and my Lean Six Sigma skill set was beautiful. And I, it, it kind of finally all made sense to me. I had, I have so much respect for the leadership of that company, but you know, over 10 years later, if I, as I reflect back, I think, gosh, they were innovators, right? They were doing things. They were seeing a need before it was kind of massively known like it is now, right? Change management was a buzzword about, I don't know, five years ago. And I feel, I still think it's kind of a buzzword, if you will. And people don't necessarily understand what change management is, but they know they need it, right? So, um, you know, I went from there into another Lean Six Sigma role where I was able to use, you know, the change management skills and really hone in on, you know, my own experience and best practices that I could share and um, really drive value. And then I, I came to the current company I'm at. And I came in again as a Lean Six Sigma Black Belt. And then they said, oh gosh, you know, we need, we have this teeny tiny change management team and we need somebody to lead them. And I was um, lucky enough that they, they chose me as the leader. And, you know, we grew that organization. Um, this culture has changed. 
the leadership is so much more knowledgeable and understanding. Um, so my, I guess my journey has been intentional since about 12 years ago, but before that I was kind of, I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. And then I found yeah. change management and I was like, interesting. What was it? It was interesting to hear you kind of light up when you, you talked about your experience with ProSci and the combination of your Lean Six Sigma training. What was it about the ProSci process? Maybe it wasn't the ProSci training itself, but what was it about that experience that you had learning about change management that kind of made those lights go off for you? Yeah, so I'm a pretty logical thinker, uh, data-driven. ProSci, as I learned in that class, is a data-driven methodology. So they do case studies um, and they publish these case studies and uh, global companies, you know, thousands of people contribute to these. And so it was data-backed. And so for me, they already got all the credibility they needed for me to really pay attention, right? Because now they're using data to tell me how to do this other thing. And then the, and, and then just learning about ADCAR, right? And that, that beautiful five letter acronym that really is the driver and the successful, the success piece for change initiatives. I don't care if it's technology. I don't care if it's, mm -hmm. you know, um, Justin's going to be in a new office in a different town or a different building, right? It doesn't matter. It's applicable anywhere. And so just seeing the data and understanding that they've done these studies and I have all of this at my fingertips now. So I felt like that validated anything that I was trying to say. And I, I mean, gosh, Justin, in the beginning, I would look through that best practices book and I would be like citing my references when I was talking to leaders, you know, I'm like, there was a case study done in 2018 or, you know, 2015 or whatever it was. And now it's just, you know, it's second nature. It's, I think ProSci has done an, a wonderful job and, and I love some of the other approaches, you know, I love Cotter's approaches. And I think there's a place for taking some of the, the best of all of them, um, depending on what you're trying to do. But for me, just learning the discipline of change management, that very simple ADCAR awareness, desire, knowledge, ability, reinforcement. It's something I can remember and it's something I can walk anybody through pretty quickly. Yeah. And I think that drives the value. I remember when we first met, you had such a strong connection with the human side of change. So it, it, it's interesting to hear you've now kind of described, I think, two different angles of the same thing, right? And when we prepared together, you talked a lot about the human element. Today, I hear you talking a lot about kind of the process and the structure, the framework that I know, you know, ProSize is so uh, well known for. Are there any experiences that you had that kind of caused you to notice this human element? Are there experiences in your background or experiences, you know, in your personal background or experiences in your work life that made you realize that sometimes the lack of attention to the human element of this is, is maybe the reason that we're struggling? Oh man. Yes, yes, yes. All the yeses. Okay. <laughs> I'll give you a really quick kind of just example of, of one situation I ran into. Um, I had my Lean Six Sigma hat on. So that was my role. And I was trying to make some changes to a manufacturing line um, that I knew would reduce our scrap, right? And that's, that's important. You know, the, 
So I was explaining to the shift leads and the operators that I wanted to run a couple of tests to make sure that this was, in fact, my hypothesis was accurate, right? But we needed to run some tests to make sure that that was the case. And they were adamant. They were not going to do it. <laughs> so I was like, oh, this is terrible. So I'm going to try the other shift, right? So there were three shifts. So I tried the second shift. And I was like, they get here before I leave during the day. It'll be fine. I went through and I was like, hey, guys, you think I could do some things? You know, I want to tweak these couple of things. And they looked at me like I was crazy. And they're like, no. And I'm like, this is terrible. <laughs> I was like, okay, I have one more shot. Third shift, right? So that's overnight. So I came in really early one morning and I was like, Hey, can we do this? And they kind of looked at me because it was the end of the shift for them. And it was the beginning of my day. Like lady, do whatever you want to do, whatever. Right. As long as you don't make us, as long as you don't make us stay late past the end of our shift. And I'm so glad you said that because I was like, I, I, I can do it. I just need is somebody going to be here long enough just to, you know, check this end of the line while I was up here. And when I get really excited, I talk quickly and I'm much more animated. And so I'm sure they were just like anything to make her stop. Right. right. So I was able to, you know, successfully prove out my hypothesis. Well, that's great. And so I took it back to plant leadership and I'm like, Hey, this, this is what I found. I really think we need to make these, you know, a few adjustments, you know, here's all the reasons why here's all the data. Um, and they, they said, go forth and do yay. Thank you. High five. Um, so I had to go back to first shift and I was like, Oh, I did the study, was able to do it. It's accurate. You know, we need to do this. And they were like a very, a variety of kind of responses. I got some not as nice as others, but that's okay. I was encroaching on their, on their area. Um, but one of the things that the shift lead said to me, she said, we know this machine better than, you know, this machine. We were here every day. I don't think that this is, you know, what you're proposing is sustainable. And I was like, golly, how am I going to get this lady to just trust me long enough to let me do this? I've, I've proved it, right? I've proved it. And it took, I don't know, two weeks of not really begging, but bothering them, right? And I found myself doing ADCAR without knowing that, it was, that was the thing, right? So I had already made them aware of what I was trying to do and they were just not having it. And so I needed them to have the desire to kind of do this change. And so it took me two weeks and a thousand different approaches. I finally got them to understand what was in it for them, right? Why was it important? Well, now you're not gonna have to have somebody standing at the end of the blind, you know, with a, a hook, removing all the scrap and now you can utilize that person to do something else, packing, you know, loading, whatever. Um, if I had taken that approach two weeks earlier or even three and a half weeks earlier, I could have accelerated the, the change, right? The adoption, but I didn't. So then I had to teach them, right? What the changes are on the machine that I wanted to make. And then I stood there for a few runs to make sure that they were doing the right thing and that everything was kind of coming out the way I expected. Um, and then I went back. Right. And so I'd have to go back and check and, you know, high fives go a long way back before COVID when I'm a high fiver. And so there's huggers, there's fist bumpers. Like I'm a high fiver. So we can say back in the high five and hugging days. <laughs> yeah. Yes. 
yeah. I would go and I was just like high-fiving them. I'm like, this is awesome. Look at how much, yeah. you know, a scrap we've saved. And here's our year-over-year data. Or here's what, you know, just like the last few weeks or whatever. They got really excited. So the next time I had to come around to them for something, they were like, okay, I'll listen to you, right? It was a really painful process. And, and it was kind of in moments like that. And, and of course, that wasn't the first one, but that was just a really good example of where the, the people side of change is that is the crux of whether or not you're going to be successful. If the people don't change, I don't, it doesn't matter what you tell them to do. If they don't do it, then you're, there's no ROI, there's no success. I mean, you're stuck. Yeah. There's something you said um, <clears throat> was about how the, the person that you're speaking with said that they knew the machine better than you did. And they were probably right. They, they do spend this, you know, they spend eight or 10 or 12 hours a day, you know, in front of that machine. How did you, you handle that circumstance? Cause I, I can feel, you know, kind of getting back, you know, push back on your heels a little bit and having to respond to that and either counter or acquiesce. What, you know, how did you handle that? I think it's like transparency is important. Justin. I mean, I told her, I was like, of course you do. I only know technical specs of what I've read, right? I don't know the nuances. And so it's just a matter of, I had to reinforce to her, like, you are right. You a hundred percent know this machine better than me. I've done this other work and I've tried it. So I, I kind of have a hunch, but again, it wasn't until I was able to walk them through kind of getting the desire for them to allow me to do it, but it's humility is important. You know, I'm, I'm not an expert in what you do, I'm just here to help you get done quicker, faster, more efficient, you know, whatever the, whatever the case may be, whatever that objective is. Um, and so I have my own toolkit and you have your toolkit. And if we put our toolkits together, we'd probably be really successful. That's a pretty powerful statement. What you just said there. I think that's uh, that's a great way to approach it. Listen, everybody knows I'm not, I haven't been through ProSci certification process. And, and I would say I'm still learning from so many of our guests in a very accelerated fashion uh, about ADCAR and some of the, the key components of it. One of the things that stands out to me every time I hear you, meaning all of you change management practitioners, when I hear you talk about the desire phase, that's one of the ones that I have the hardest time as a non-practitioner to really understand. How can we genuinely create a circumstance where you know, uh, a human flips from having no desire or little desire to having a sufficient level of desire to, to adopt this change. Can you talk us through that a little bit? Yeah, that's a loaded question. It's so individual to each person. You're the, the level of desire that you need as a person, Justin, in order to proceed with a change is going to be different than Bob or Sally Ann or Luke or Hillary. And so a good change manager is working with the leaders of these people, their leaders, um, understands the culture that they're working in, um, has a real holistic view of everything that's happening because the change that I'm trying to get Justin to adopt could be gigantic or could be really small. But if I don't understand all of the different things that Justin is also being asked to do that are changes, none of us are gonna be successful. Sometimes it's 
Justin needs to understand the story around the why, right? Why is it important to you, to Justin, to him? So the with them, right? What's in it for me? Sometimes it's okay to say there's nothing really in it for you, Justin, but this is a foundational process, whatever step that we need you to adopt so that we can actually realize some value downstream, right? So desire, again, it's, it's the hardest thing to acquire and achieve in the ad car model. Um, and you have to be nimble. You know, I have to have the ability to, to have a conversation with Justin or a group of Justins and a conversation with Hillary or a group of Hillary's and really understand their pain so that I can address it. People want to feel valued. That's the most important. They want to feel heard. You know, they want a, a seat at the table, right? Their, their opinion needs to matter. And you're not going to achieve desire if you're if you're not giving folks these things that they need, right? Yeah. So, I mean, that's kind of a ten thousand foot view, but I, I do think it's important to just speak to desire as individual, and that as a change practitioner, as a leader of a team going through changes, it's our responsibility. It's everybody's responsibility to make sure we understand why people are feeling the way they are, so that we can help them. That's, yeah. I mean, listen. When you when you started that explanation, you're making me realize of one of the the big challenges. You know, this show focuses on frontline workers. It tends to be the men and women that are not in the corporate office in most cases, right? They're out and about. They're geographically distributed, and it, it poses a couple of of challenges. I think in what you just described, which is the first, is that there's not just a handful. So in your position, you're not able to go speak to each one of the people affected by change individually. So this is something that we all need to work together to find ways to scale to hundreds or many thousands of people across an organization. The other thing that struck me as you were talking about that is that the WIFM part, helping them understand you know, what's in it for them is further, that challenge is exacerbated by the fact that they're often not privy to a lot of the conversations leading up to that change. So even you know in a corporate environment or regional offices, you are pulled into conversations or you have water cooler conversations about things that are coming down the pipe. And maybe there's even the kind of informal, you know, corporate rumor mill that, you know, allows, you know, um, a heads up to propagate, you know, through the business. But many of the women on the front, men and women on the front lines are not privy to those conversations. And so when we're implementing change, they're hearing about a lot of this for the first time. And have you, are there communication methods? I know where it's a bit of a conflict or contrast because we're saying we need to find individual ways to communicate, but then that doesn't scale very well. How do you handle that imbalance? Or are there any tricks up your sleeve to, to achieve individual communication at scale? Excuse me. So there's a few things, right? Um, one of the things at my current company, we have this brilliant gentleman who really has a passion for change management. Um, he's been doing change management in a lot of places, but he's, you know, an executive level person. And, you know, he, he essentially set up a change agent network, right? And so he came in and he was like, we need to replicate the change management team that we have um, sort of extensions of, we need these cheerleaders for these initiatives, right? 
And so very successfully, he's been able to stand this up. It's, it's been hands down one of the best programs to come out of our area, um, the engineering technology area in a long time as with regards to people interactions, right? And adoption. So creating your cohorts of change agents, right? That's a big deal because those people can then fund, it's, it's a basic train the trainer model, if you will, but kind of what he's done and, and what I think has proven to be so successful is not only train the trainer, but empower them, right? Engage them, get them excited because that's gonna also filter down to everybody that they engage with, right? Yeah. So it's, it's not just Hillary's gonna teach Justin how to do the thing or make the widget. It is Hillary's excited. Hillary understands the why. Hillary's been given some additional information that maybe Justin has, hasn't from conversations that happened upstream around why we're doing this. And now, you know, I'm gonna share it with you. And so that is, that has been a huge win. Um, and it's a model I will take with me anywhere for the rest of my life. I mean, it's just, it's been phenomenal. That's awesome. Regarding, yeah. Regarding communications. Yes, it is. Yes. Um, the one thing I would want to say is you have to take, that sounds so prescriptive. It would be really smart for organizations, groups, teams to take kind of a multimodal approach, right? We've, we've got to hit all of the types of learners um, and we need to understand the messaging that's required and how people receive information. You know, the sender matters. That's one of the first things I took away from my ProSight training is the sender of the message matters. And so depending on what you're trying to communicate, the person delivering the message is essential. Well, t talk to me a little bit more about that. I'm not sure that I'm understanding. What do you mean by the, the center matters? The sender. So the sender of the message. So mm -hmm. if your organization is um, being sent home on March 13th because of this global pandemic, do you want to hear the information from your neighbor or your boss or the CEO of your company? Well, that's something that you would want to hear from probably all three because it's really big, huge impact, right? But um, do I want to hear that um, there's a new system going in over the weekend and that I'm going to have to start using it on Monday from my neighbor who said, oh yeah, I mean, I got this email like a week ago. Did you not get that email or that meeting invite? I'm like, I don't know. I was really busy. I didn't see it. Like if it, who did it come from you? Cause you know, Justin, like, oh yeah, I forwarded it to you. I didn't see you. I was like, man, you're not that important in my work day potentially, but my manager would have been, so if my manager would have sent that to me, I would have been like, Ooh, gosh, I'm going to look at that. Right. So just some generic examples, but the sender of the message matters, right? I don't want, um, somebody from, I'm trying to think of a way to be a slightly ambiguous, like a claims department mm -hmm. sending information about technology changes. Like I'm not going to pay attention to that. Now that's an exaggerated example, right? But no, that, that actually, that actually makes a lot of sense. And I hadn't really thought about that. So I'm, I'm glad we, we 
spend an extra couple of minutes on that. I think I, first of all, I misunderstood the word that you had said. I thought you said the center. So the oh. center, <laughs> so that, that actually makes a lot more sense, but the center, okay, but, that, but that's also some perspective that I hadn't had before yeah. that it really is important. He said, and, it, and it's actually, I think part of what uh, I've heard some other folks on the podcast talk about that, but maybe in a slightly different way in that sometimes the overarching business results. Like we may be implementing new technology for the sake of the business to improve efficiency and improve the bottom line numbers and to have a better story for Wall Street and all these other things that are important in the grand scheme of things, but may not be terribly important to all recipients of that message, right? So when we're thinking about particularly the impact on frontline workers, and many of them may say, that's all great, but what about me? <laughs> what, you know, this is going to impact my job. Um, I've thought about that more in terms of how we communicated to them and what we communicated. I haven't thought about it as much in terms of who should do that communication. And that's interesting. And you're right that it's probably not just a single answer, but maybe it's a series of folks, but we need to be deliberate and thoughtful about that. I think there's so funny little story. I was in an organization that used kind of a single email to communicate changes. Right. And they would, you know, copy all employees, CC all employees. Well, <laughs> there's also different email groups and they would CC large populations of people. And then you would get that reply all avalanche that starts. And, Shoot me now. you know, I know. <laughs> it was so humorous at some point because you just want to like, reply all and say, stop responding. Of course. Then you're perpetuating, <laughs> you're accelerating this avalanche, right? And so you just have to sit back and go, you know, when I say the sender matters, I think, you know, I think of things like that, where you have large populations receiving in this instance, an email, and maybe they don't think it's for them, or I shouldn't be on this list, or why, why am I getting this, right? And you've just now sent that to, you know, 5,000 other employees. And then can you hit recall message fast enough? <laughs> no. Definitely not. Just a, one of those things that's happened um, in the last couple of years that just makes me laugh. Yeah. So there's definitely the some room. There's always some room for improvement on the tools and methods that we use to, uh, to communicate as you've just very well described. Yes. So you said something before that I want to explore a little bit further because I'd, I'd like to get a better understanding of what you mean. And I'm writing this quote or reading this quote as closely as I can uh, have taken my notes. They don't understand what change management is, but they know they need it. Mm. That resonated with me a lot, but I'd like to hear you describe why you feel that way and maybe give me some examples around that. Yeah, for sure. So you kind of talked about advocating for change management and why it's so important and how yeah. the evolution over 10 years has really changed and, and changed. So talk us through that. I think that um, even in my current company, I think originally the thought was, oh gosh, we need change management. We need communications around the things that we're doing and training, right? We need those two things. And so we had these in the, in the beginning, um, you know, our wonderful, brilliant leadership team you know, said, we need this. And they understood what they needed. Maybe they'd experienced it at other companies and change management tends to get grouped into these, you know, training and communications buckets. And while those are wildly important and core competencies of a change manager, 
there's additional elements of the job and the discipline and, and the work that are not as tangible, right? So do I produce a change impact analysis that I've done on an upcoming initiative? Sure, I produce that. Do I uh, create communications for teams or you know, business units or entire organizations? I can, I can do that. Uh, do we have people, uh, you know, instructional designers who understand adult learners and really understand the nature of what we're trying to do, create training? Yes, we have all that. We also bring this additional element to the table where we have a seat. So we work with everybody from the, the lowest impacted, if you will, on a hierarchical scale, right? That end user, no matter what title or level they are in the company, all the way up to sometimes C-suite, just depends on what you're doing. And we have a, and I'm gonna speak specifically for the organization I'm currently in, this breadth of knowledge, right? So we, these teams know what's happening in different areas, they know the users that are impacted. So if I go back to kind of that earlier example of, you know, Justin getting an email from me, his coworker, are you going to look at it versus me or change manager, somebody that you recognize who I am and my name and that I'm hopeful to you. And I've sent you an email, maybe with a title saying, you know, new change coming or something like that. Right. Are you going to look at that? Yes. Because there's a, when as a change manager, you get in the weeds with the people and you really understand their pain, there's the, that drives the value for you at, when you're sitting at the table with your delivery teams and leadership, and you're giving your recommendations on what they should and shouldn't be doing and when, and all of that, because you, you sit here with these people and you have the conversations, you've built those relationships. So it's hard to some to quantify, and it's even it's difficult to articulate sometimes. Um, I get asked, I used to get asked quite frequently, <laughs> what is change management? Oh, it's communications and training. So we'd have our brilliant developers creating these things, and then their delivery manager would say, oh, hey, we need some change management. I'm like, wait, what? You're doing this when? In two weeks? I'm like, have you thought about this? Like, Do you know that all these people are being impacted by all these other changes as well. You know, isn't this the same kind of thing we're doing in this other space? Like all of that stuff. So I used to tell people, you know, the analogy where you have the jar and you put the big rocks in of the things that are most important to you and then the smaller rocks and then the pebbles. I always used to tell people change management in an organization is the sand, right? We're the sand that touches all the places and that kind of keeps everybody together and connected. Right. And so if I'm struggling to articulate the additional things around change management, take, take that away. Right. We're the sand in that jar of, of rocks and pebbles. I, I love that video, by the way, uh, yeah. Mr. Stephen Covey, one of my favorites. And I've shared the video even recently, probably in the last few months, I've shared that video and I was amazed at how old some of those videos are. <laughs> Uh, since Mr. Covey was still around with us. Um, and, and I need to think about your, your example there with, you know, the sand filtering in it. And that part definitely makes a lot of sense to me that, you know, it doesn't change the priorities, 
the priorities still are the larger rocks that we have to, you know, get in there, right. And put them in first, but the sand or the smaller rocks do end up touching, you know, all of those big priorities. And, um, yeah, I, I think the part that I'm, I'm still kind of scratching my head about a little bit is how very intelligent folks with lots of experience can still be inside organizations sometimes and just think that they can kind of power through change and maybe not acknowledge the bottleneck that's being created, right? Because we're maybe leading a project through, I know you've got a PMI background too, but we're leading a project from like the Gantt chart instead mm-hmm. of, you know, and thinking about it as a ta- an exercise in task management rather than really thinking about, well, this is all great, but we can manage all of the tasks. And if the humans don't adopt the change on the other end of this, then it's been a wasted effort, right? And once you hear it, and, and once I've had the exposure of talking with professionals like you, it seems like it's so freaking obvious. And yet I still find every single change management practitioner that I speak with, every single one of you is still talking about how important the advocacy is for change management, as if we still need to convince people that this makes sense. And so I'm, I'm just struggling a little bit. I, I, can't, I can't imagine a scenario where somebody would consciously say, hey, Hillary, those all sound like great ideas, but we're going to completely just throw them out the window because we don't believe in it, right? Like it doesn't make sense. Yet, I still feel like um, there's a lot of advocacy required in order to make this happen effectively. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I would take even a step back and say, we need all of the players on the team, right? Everybody at their best. I, if I'm the delivery manager of, this thing, whatever that we're trying to do, this initiative, my expectation is that I'm going to manage this so that we deliver successfully. And I need to understand that that would include people changing the way they do things. Now, in the the organizations I've been in the last probably 15 years, you have highly skilled people working at a pace that is probably just beyond their comfort zone, right? So we're, we're constantly asking our workforce to be quicker, more efficient, faster, it, and kind of do all these things at the same time, right. right? I need to deliver earlier. I need it to cost less. I need it to be high quality and I need it to exceed our customers' expectations. Go forth. You no know, pressure. <laughs> may the force be with you. Right. Gosh, people that know me know I, they're going to love that quote, by the way. Um, anyways, so I guess back to what you were saying, advocacy is important and it is essential. The earlier that change management gets engaged and gets a seat at the table, the better positioned for success your project or deliverable is. As a project manager, I'm creating this delivery plan. And I'm going to expect the change manager to also have a plan that I will lay on top of mine. And then we can see where there may be friction points and we can adjust, you know, accordingly. But, but those two roles are essential to success. Um, even at, at my current company where I think change management has evolved exponentially in the last four years. And um, we have great practitioners great leaders in that space. Um, 
I think even then, you know, we get to go in so fast and we get, it's, it's about delivering value to the customer. And then we forget, oh gosh, okay. People are going to actually have to do something different or, you know, we probably need to bring change management in. And so I think even still there's <laughs> some missteps. I think that's normal, you know, gosh, we miss as humans all the time. And so right. I think it's just a matter of extending grace and just continuing to be advocates and, and really cheerleaders for the people, right? You want them to change. And transparency is really important too. I mean, at the end of the day, it's okay to say, gosh, Justin, I have this plan and it's beautiful and perfect. And we're expecting to deliver in, to deliver in two weeks. And I'm so sorry, I forgot to ask you to come in <laughs> as the change manager, right? That's okay to say that. Right. Um, so I, right, I've I heard guess that's my answer. We've had, it's a great answer. And we've had a lot of guests talk about the importance of, of transparency. And I, I love that because I think part of the pushback that we sometimes get from the end users, particularly around technology is, you know, yes, they've been out of the loop on a lot of the, the planning leading up to it, um, but they, they are left out. And uh, oftentimes we communicate as if it's going to be a perfect deployment in a perfect scenario. And it's almost a, it's, it's an insult to them, to, to their intelligence to say, listen, we've been through this five times before. And the last four times you guys from corporate came out here to roll something out. It was a disaster. Right. And, and some of the best stories that we've had on the podcast have been people that have just acknowledged that, right. They've, they've gone out to the men and women and said, listen, I know last time it was a disaster. We acknowledge it. I was a part of the project. Right. Um, it's, th this isn't going to be perfect either, but here's what we're looking for here. Right. And so I, I love that the, the idea of transparency, it seems so Obvious, you know, when we talk about it here on the podcast, I, I know sometimes it's more difficult because it it requires a bit of uh, vulnerability mm -hmm. on the part of those folks being transparent. But in the end, you know, we're humans working with other humans. If we can just kind of lay that stuff out on the table and say, yeah, there's there's something will probably go wrong here, um, but let's work on that together. And, and to the point that you've done such a great job of explaining is if we can help connect what we're doing with the what's in it for them, you know, early and often then I think it can make that whole circumstance quite a bit more palatable. Yeah, I agree 150%. I think grace is probably one of the most important things we can extend each other because, yeah. I mean, these times we don't know, right? Somebody's, I, I don't, I could catch Justin on a really bad day and I'm trying to give him really awesome information about something he really needs to know. And he's just going to be incapable of yep. consuming that information and storing it, right? I, we're all humans. We say dumb things. We do dumb things. We sure. don't pay attention. We're 100% distracted sometimes. I mean, we, if we're not giving each other grace, what are we doing, yeah. right? We, we are already coming up at the end of our time. We knew, we talked at the beginning of the podcast that this is going to go really fast. It's been a great discussion. I, I'd like to finish up with... Um, something I'd like to explore with, with all of our guests going forward a little bit more, which is wh what do you think is a myth about organizational change management that you'd like to debunk? What do you think others in the organization think about OCM that is maybe just not accurate and you'd like to s clear the air on that? I think I kind of touched on it earlier, honestly, when it, I, I, your OCM organization shouldn't be looked at just as communications and, and training, right? There's, um, 
if your change management team is, is looked at as the sand in that jar, those practitioners in your organization very likely have the ability and the skill set to flex into different roles or hybrid type situations, depending on what's needed in order to have a successful delivery. And so let's not put change management into a box, right? Let's really embrace the people who are focused on the people because if you embrace them and you allow them uh, the ability to have a seat at the table, to give the recommendations on things that they see will help you, you know, successfully deliver whatever you are trying to deliver to your customer. Um, your ROI will go up in an accelerated speed, right? So th the myth is they're just communications and training. Oh no, they're experts in those areas, right? That's their job. But they also bring an entire layer of support, communication, interpersonal communication, engagement, relationship building, risk assessments, um, and that broad view of what's happening in your organization to the table. And when everybody's focused heads down on a single thing and you have somebody that has, you know, kind of a broad view, you should, should definitely welcome them in to sit next to you in the meeting. Yeah, I, I think that's a fantastic way for us to wrap up the show. You've, you've really helped expand my thinking a little bit on that, that the communications and training are table stakes. They're required and necessary, obviously, in order to be effective. But without a little bit of the, the nuance about how to deliver those things and to really consider the, the humans on the receiving side of that, that we can have the best training materials and the, and the best communication plan and all that kind of stuff. And, and it's not going to be as effective as it otherwise could. So I think you've done a great job of, of kind of making the case for that today. Awesome. Thank yeah, you. That's really good. Hillary, thank you so much. It's been a fantastic conversation. I've really enjoyed having you on the show today and um, yes, I do need to wrap it up. Um, it's been a good conversation, but, um, we need to wrap it. So, um, to the audience, I hope you found this conversation, this conversation as enjoyable as I have. And if so, please share and rate the podcast. As we always say, five-star ratings do help ensure that it gets promoted to other professionals like you that are innovating on the front lines. And I'm excited that we're starting to see a, a real pickup in the number of listeners that we have on a weekly and monthly basis. So thank you to all the folks out there that are listening. Uh, this podcast is sponsored by Skillful, the mobile digital adoption platform for deskless and frontline workers. Visit the website at skillful.com. That's S-K-Y-L-L-F-U-L.com. And if you or somebody you know is out there innovating on the front lines, we'd love to hear about it. Please reach out to me on LinkedIn and share your story. Hillary, that goes for you too. If you know somebody else that would make a great guest on the show, we'd love to hear about it and uh, look forward to uh, getting that introduction. So thank you again for the time. And uh, it was great to have you on the show today. 